This is Dr. Jimmy Nichols, equine nutritionist. On this podcast, we will explore unique cases, debunk popular myths, and break down advanced research data. Join me for a little fun, a lot of science, and some real-world advice for feeding horses. Welcome to episode 125 of Feed Room Chemist. It is Dr. Jimmy. Back in February, I was invited to be a guest speaker at the IAED conference held in Orlando, Florida, which is a dental conference for horses. After I finished that conference, I promised my listeners that I would turn those three presentations into podcast episodes. So this is the last episode in this three-part dental series, and I hope you guys enjoy. But before we get to that, this is just your friendly reminder to go share this podcast with your friends. Um, Your comments, your shares, your reviews, all of it just helps um, the exposure for this podcast, helps get the word out about caring for horses, and it just helps people kind of nerd out around the science um, that comes with feeding horses. So I love hearing about how many people have been impacted by these episodes and how much you guys are enjoying it. So All of that positive feedback really does keep me going. Uh, You can find me on Facebook or on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Jimmy, and that's spelled D-R-J-Y-M-E. All right, let's get into the show. The formal name for this presentation during the conference was, For Better or Worse, The Impact of Modern Feeding Practices. Now, this one was particularly interesting for me because it challenged me to really connect the dots between what we are feeding our horses in the current day and how those feeding practices might actually impact our horse's oral or dental health. So let's start by taking everyone back 6,000 years ago and imagining what life was like for a horse in that period. To put this in perspective, like how long ago that was, and for all of you pedigree buffs, it would be around 450 generations. I mean, I'm happy when I can look back five or six generations on a horse's pedigree, so it's a little bit hard for me to wrap my head around this idea that we're talking about 450 generations back in history. Hang with me though. So we are 6,000 years back in time. We are in the Eurasian steps. And to help orient my American friends just a bit to where the Eurasian steps are, I want you to kind of think about modern day Ukraine and Kazakhstan. I hope I pronounced that right. So this area has geography that is very similar to the short grass prairie in the Great Plains of North America. Um, Now, not that I've ever been there. I just Googled pictures. (laughs) But it has uh, four very distinct seasons. Okay, so if you can imagine, fall is going to be relatively dry, winters are going to be snowy, um, spring can be cold and wet, and summers are generally going to boast like this period of time where there's some lush green meadow grass. Okay, so the point that I'm trying to make here is that horses lived on the grasslands and experienced four very different seasons, which means the quality of their food supply shifted with the weather and shifted with the length of the days. So in spring and summer, we're talking lush green grasses that are gonna offer high amounts of energy, um, plenty of protein, whereas in the fall and winter, you're gonna be dealing more with dormant grasses, which means they've, they've shut down, the grasses are not growing, that's what we mean when we say dormant. 
Um, so those fall and winter dormant grasses are going to have a lot less nutrition. Now these horses were basically in this constant, you know, ebb and flow throughout each calendar year. So if you were to chart, you know, the nutritional value of the food that they consumed, it would look kind of like a wavy line going up and then dropping down, up and down, up and down <laughs> over and over every year. And so this is, this is really the first difference in our modern day horses compared to their ancestors. Our modern day horses never experience these ups and downs in their nutrition. Okay. Now I'm, I'm making kind of blanket statements here. The majority of them don't experience these ups and downs in their nutrition. And now I'm not necessarily talking about vitamins and minerals. I'm talking specifically about like energy or calories and protein, right? So horses are, you know, modern day horses are generally on, you know, good quality green pastures, or if they're not on those, then they're on, you know, high quality hay. And they have this good quality nutrition offered to them year round. There are not times of scarcity in the modern horse's diet. A second difference in the horses from 450 generations ago is that they were truly grazers. They ate very small meals continually throughout the day. And those meals were primarily taken in at the ground level, right? Head down, grazing grass. In addition, those horses weren't standing in one place and eating, right? They ate as they moved. They take a bite, they take a step, they take a bite, they take a step. And they moved around and they covered large amounts of land each day. Well, our modern day stall dwellers are typically given two large meals, morning and night, you know, hay and grain. And the assumption that we make is that our horses will be logical and they will ration the hay and the grain out over the next 12 hours until we come and feed them again. But anyone who actually feeds horses knows that that does not happen, right? They're like vacuum cleaners on four legs that are absolutely inhaling every morsel in front of them as quickly as possible. So food that we think should last them 12 hours is probably lucky to see the light of day for more than three or four hours, right? Then our vacuum cleaner on four legs spends the remaining eight hours dreaming up things to do in their boredom. And that's where, you know, you, you see vices like cribbing, stall weaving, you know, pawing, kicking, head bobbing, wood chewing, shavings consumption, dirt licking, water sloshing. <laughs> Those are all things I can just think of off the top of my head. I'm sure you guys can add to the list, right? They start to develop these vices because they're bored. They don't have anything to eat. They don't have anything to do. They don't have any friends. They're stuck in the stall by themselves, you know, and so they just start dreaming up all the crazy that, that they can that they can think of. Or maybe, maybe your horse is not in a stall, um, or maybe your horse has a slow feeder system and they do have the ability to eat hay 24 seven. Well, that takes care of the boredom and the empty stomach piece, but they are likely not getting very much natural movement, right? Because they just like post up at the hay feeder and don't move more than a hundred steps a day. And they only get that many steps just because they have to mosey over for a drink of water a few times each day. And then to top all of that off, uh, most of these horses are eating their food at chest level, not ground level, um, or maybe even higher. There might even be some horses that are eating their food higher than chest level, um, particularly like if there are hay nets that are hung like really, really high for some reason. Now, 
I am in no way demonizing any of these situations. Like they are what they are. And I promise no horse is dying or living a life of despair, but it's important to understand how these very simple environmental things um, can have an impact on our horses, right? So this is really about bringing awareness to the root of, let's call them environmental malalignments so that if it is possible, we can address the root problem instead of applying these bandages over bandages. Let me clarify that statement maybe with a little bit of an example. So let's say that a horse has a quote problem of, I don't know, cribbing, okay? Is the problem really that the horse cribs or is the problem that the horse doesn't have enough of something in their environment, right? Maybe they don't have enough to eat. Maybe they don't have a friend or a herd. Um, maybe they don't have enough room to move and roam. Uh, maybe they don't get ridden often enough. Okay, there's lots of maybes here. And as owners, we can either, you know, put a bandage over the problem by trying every cribbing collar under the sun or, you know, treating for ulcers or spraying the stalls with bitter tasting gunk or, you know, any other option, right? Or we can think about addressing the root of the issue, okay? So can we put this horse in a better environmental position? Can we provide a buddy horse? Can we offer more turnout time? Can we ride this horse more frequently? Or ultimately, you know, and, and I know that a lot of us don't like to have to think about this, but maybe we need to find a new home for this horse with someone who can meet the environmental needs of that particular horse. And I am not saying that this is an easy thing to do, right? Not everyone has the setup to accommodate a horse's natural needs. Um, so, you know, in my example, like, let's say that I was trying to deal with a cribber. Um, kind of my approach would be first to try putting them in a large pasture or a larger turnout. Um, I would probably put them in something that had electric fences uh, around it or and making sure that there was nothing like solid for them to crib on. Um, I'd probably put feed pans out there that were, you know, rubber tubs on the ground. So we're feeding at ground level. Um, also those, you know, rubber feed pans would be much more difficult for them to try to crib on. Um, I would also probably try to have at least one buddy horse in there with them. Um, so that's kind of an example of how I would try to approach that particular problem. Um, I would think through it in terms of, you know, how do I get this horse better aligned with what they naturally need? So that's the direction that I'm going to go every time versus, you know, the alternative, can I, what, you know, like the alternative is what can I go buy to patch up this issue or what bandaid can I apply to this issue? Right? Like I, I, I generally don't like to apply band-aids. I like to try to get to the root of the problem. So, and again, I'm just, I'm kind of using cribbing as a theoretical example of how, you know, I would first try to align those environmental needs um, as a way to get to the root of addressing problems that a horse might, might be dealing with. And I understand that there are layers of complexity with every single case and there will never be a, you know, like one size fits all solution. I'm just trying to kind of get people to start to think more about um, what it looks like to kind of go to the root cause of some of these environmental related conditions um, and trying to address that first. So there I go again on a rabbit trail, <laughs> but back to the point, okay, horses that lived 6,000 years ago lived much differently than horses do now. 
They covered miles of ground every day. They ate pasture grass at ground level. They took hundreds of bites or chews each day. They took in small amounts of food almost constantly throughout the day. Um, they also had times of surplus and they had times of scarcity in terms of nutritional value of the grass that they ate, which means their body condition would fluctuate as a result, right? So for example, coming out of winter, horses were probably going to look a little thin. You're probably going to see some ribs, might even see some hip bones, right? And then coming out of summer, going into winter or into fall, those horses likely had a pretty nice layer of fat. The body condition was probably pretty good on those horses. And that fluctuation in their body condition is just simply a result of, you know, the quality of the grasses that they ate being in alignment with the changing of the seasons. Okay. All right. So how, how does this all relate to the mouth and dentition of our modern day horse? Well, first of all, I want to talk about chewing range of motion. So in 2007, Bonin and team studied the mandibular motion of horses eating long stem forage versus eating forage pellets, okay? In other words, they wanted to see if there was a change in the chewing motion of the lower jaw when a horse ate pelleted hay or cubed hay versus when they ate normal hay or long stem hay, okay? So what they did is they used um, basically a motion capture system and then they placed nine markers on the horse's skull and mandible. And they recorded the chewing motion or the chewing movement for those horses when they ate the long stem hay and then when they ate the pelleted forage. And what they found was that the number of chewing cycles was lower or less for long stem hay compared to pellets. In other words, chewing long stem hay results in a greater range of motion in all three directions of the chewing movement compared to chewing pellets. Okay. So just to bring everyone kind of up to speed on, on this, a horse's lower jaw moves. It makes three different movements in three different directions during each chew cycle. So there's the opening stroke, there's the closing stroke, and then there's the power stroke. Opening and closing are slightly more up and down motions. And then the power stroke is more of a horizontal motion because that's the phase of the chew cycle where the horse really grinds the food across their teeth to, to grind and break it down. So if you were to draw this motion out on paper in a two-dimensional format, if you were looking at the horse head on, this motion would look kind of like a triangle, right? So it's like up, down, across, up, down, across, okay? So these researchers um, basically had charts of these chewing movements. So you can look at these little triangles. And when you look at the results of this study on paper in this two-dimensional format, you have a small triangle when the horses are eating pelleted forage, and then you have a large triangle when the horses are eating long stem forage. So they actually have almost double the length of movement in their power stroke when they're eating long stem hay versus pelleted hay. So their chewing motion, motion their chewing movement of their mouth is, is, taking much, is taking larger opening strokes, larger, which then obviously is gonna result in, in larger closing strokes, 
and then longer, larger power strokes. So what does that mean? Well, chewing long stem hay results in a horse's teeth staying in contact for a longer period of time during that power stroke motion. That means that your horse is going to get full contact of the upper and lower dental arcades. Okay. So another way to think about this, um, chewing pelleted or cubed hay may cause horses to make shorter power strokes, meaning they may not be getting full contact between their upper and lower molars. That means a horse who is allowed to eat long stem forage may have better dental health over a longer period of time just because they're going to require, potentially require less tooth removal and um, less dramatic realignment during their annual dental exams. Like, I would love to see a long-term study done on horses who eat hay cubes or hay pellets their entire life versus horses who eat long stem hay or pasture their entire life. Um, You know, the results of this particular study would lead me to hypothesize that horses on that long stem forage are going to be more likely to have better quality teeth longer into their lives compared to horses that are fed hay cubes or hay pellets their entire life. So maybe... Maybe this is a contributing factor in why some horses are down to almost nothing left of their molars by the time that they're in their early 20s, while there's other horses that can still have like this full, healthy, functioning set of teeth and they're in their early 30s. So I don't know, but I think I think it would be interesting to look at if anyone has the funding or the patience <laughs> for a long-term study like that. Now, on that note... Um, I just want to be really clear. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for pelleted or cubed forage, right? There are certainly times and reasons where it's helpful and maybe even necessary to use those types of diets. So if you want to learn more about the use of hay cubes and hay pellets, um, pros and cons and all the things, uh, I talked about that in episode 90. So hop back and look at that. The second area where modern day feeding practices impact our horses is with dental abnormalities. Okay, so a 2010 study by O'Neill and colleagues evaluated the impacts of modern day stalling practices on the mouths of horses. So what they did is they compared two scenarios. They looked at free living horses, meaning horses that were at pasture year round and really had very little human contact. And they compared those to stabled horses or stalled horses, meaning horses that were living in stalls, they were fed twice daily meals, and they were only taken out of the stall for exercise and movement like once or maybe twice a day. What they found is that stalled or stabled horses had an increased prevalence of four different things. They had an increased prevalence of excessive transverse ridges, hooks, ramps, and periodontal disease. That was compared to the horses that lived at pastures. So just to note for any of you statistics buffs listening in, the p-value for those four abnormalities was p was less than 0.01. And the researchers actually evaluated a total of 10 different abnormalities within the mouth. Um, And the stabled horses had higher prevalence scores in all 10 of the areas, but it was just those four that had true statistical significance. 
So what does all of that mean? It means that the simple act of keeping your horses in stalls with, you know, twice daily feeding and exercise patterns is linked to the likelihood of them developing the typical dental abnormalities. So not a life or death deal, but it certainly supports the theory that your horses need to have their teeth evaluated at least once every 12 months to correct those little hooks and ramps and ridges before they become major problems. Now, I mentioned periodontal disease as one of the items that modern day stalled horses are more likely to develop. And that kind of leads me into point number three. And that is that our modern day horses are impacted by dental caries. So it's kind of a fancy way of saying our horses have cavities in their teeth. Um, to, to kind of dig into this a little bit more, I found a study by Jackson in 2021 and that particular study set out to evaluate whether the progression of dental caries, or I'm gonna, I'll, I'll call them cavities here just because I feel like that word is more familiar for people. Um, they, they wanted to see whether the progression, the progression of those, those cavities could be stopped if a high sugar hay was replaced with a low sugar hay. Now I'm guessing some of you are like, wait, what did you say? A high sugar hay and a low sugar hay? Yes, in parts of the world and even parts of the United States, it is common to feed horses oaten hay or wheat hay. Um, you might also hear people call this type of forage um, cereal hay, right? So things like barley hay. Um, anyway, cereal hays like oaten hay or wheat hay, they're gonna carry a high starch and sugar load. And this can actually have a negative impact on our horse's teeth. So did anyone ever tell you that eating all of that sugar will make your teeth rot out when you were little? Well, think of that statement kind of in horse terms. So eating high sugar diets on a daily basis really can give your horse's cavities as well. So back to the study. So the team of researchers evaluated 42 horses that were eating oat and hay, and these horses all had existing peripheral caries or, or cavities, if you want to say it, call it that. So the researchers assessed all the horses. They scored the severity of the um, caries or cavities, and then they switched them all over to a different diet, what we would maybe consider a more normal um, forage of kind of like meadow hay. Now, those horses remained on the new hay for 15 months, and then they were reassessed. And what the researchers observed was significantly lower grades of peripheral caries or cavities. 69% of cases were marked as inactive. Okay, so that's good. That means that the high sugar hay that the horses were eating really was contributing to an unhealthy mouth. And just that simple act of switching off of something like the oaten hay or the wheat hay and getting that horse back to a more typical grass hay um, can actually create a healthier environment in the horse's mouth. Now here's the cool part. Horses have an advantage over us because their teeth continue to grow over the course of their lifetime. So they have new tooth surface that is rupturing or appearing all the time while the oldest tooth surface gets ground away. That means that by changing the oral environment, okay, or changing what you feed that horse and what's ex what the mouth is exposed to, not only can you freeze time in the sense of oral health, you have also the ability to improve it as the tooth grows and that new surface area comes into play. 
And based on the results of this particular study, you can shift the mouth from a negative condition to a more positive condition in roughly a year to a year and a half's worth of time. Now, I'm sure that there are some big questions rolling around in some people's mind right now because I mentioned high sugar diets basically causing cavities in horses' mouths. So I want to be really clear. This study was looking at high sugar forages, not feeding sweet feeds, okay? The difference here is that, you know, I mean, a grain meal happens pretty quick. Um, You know, two feedings a day that last maybe 10 or 15 minutes at most and the horse is done with their grain. Now, I'm not saying that feeding sweet feed to a horse is going to cause cavities or peripheral caries here. The reason that the sugar was impactful in the horses in this particular study is because they were eating high sugar hay, meaning the teeth and the oral cavity were likely exposed for 10 or maybe even 15 hours, not minutes, right? 10 or 15 hours a day as they ate this hay over the course of of time and and over the course of a, a large portion of their lives, right? So the total time of sugar in the mouth was very high for these horses. Now, another thing I want to put in perspective was, um, maybe the amount of sugar that is in different types of hay. Cause I'm sure that people are, are trying to sort through in their brains, you know, am I feeding a high sugar hay? Am I feeding a low sugar hay? So I'll give you a few numbers. Oaten hay, uh, which is what this particular study looked at has around 20% sugar and that's measured as water soluble carbohydrates or WSC. Um, barley hay or wheat hay is, is going to be closer to 15% sugar. Uh, orchard grass hay is going to be kind of around that 12% mark. Uh, if you're feeding teff hay, you're probably going to be looking around 7 to 8% sugar. Alfalfa is a little lower. It's usually around 6 or 7% sugar. And then Bermuda grass hay or your warm season species are going to clock in or tick in at the lowest levels. Um, Bermuda grass is, is generally going to be around 4, 5, 6% sugar. So hopefully that sheds some light on the level of sugar that the kinds of hays generally have. Now, keep in mind, those are averages just to kind of get your head in the ballpark. And the only way to know the sugar content in your hay is to actually have it tested. Now, what is it about sugar that is so damaging to the horse's mouth? Well, there are natural bacteria that live in the mouth of the horse. And when your horse eats high amounts of sugar, that sugar gets fermented by the bacteria that live in the mouth. And it's through this fermentation process, um, an acid byproduct is basically created. And that acid byproduct lowers the pH of the mouth. And ultimately what's going on is this kind of constant acidic pH of the mouth then leads to decalcification of the horse's teeth. So, Even more reason to test your hay and make sure your horse is getting routine dental care. And even if your horse's total diet is low in sugar, um, peripheral caries can still develop, right? So anywhere a horse gets a little uh, food impaction, that would be a primary target spot for harboring bacteria and allowing this whole process to develop and unfold. So this is one reason that a horse may have to have 
um, you know, like a single molar extracted, right? It might, it might've started as just like this little food stuck between the teeth and it was never cleared out. And then after months or even years of it being impacted, um, the end result is, you know, a, a tooth that decalcifies it, it's decaying, um, it, it, and it may even be dead and ultimately has to be removed. So bottom line for this episode, uh, we are doing things with our horses that are not in alignment with the way that they evolved 6,000 years ago, which means that our horses are dealing with issues today that their ancestors likely did not experience, which means um, our modern practices of caring for horses. So, you know, where they live, when they get to eat, what we are feeding, they all may have negative impacts on their dental health. So it's so important for you to work closely with your dental professional. And like, I recommend just right now, put a calendar reminder in your phone for every 12 months to get an appointment set up to have your horse's teeth examined. Like this is definitely an area where the old saying about an ounce of prevention really rings true. That brings us to a wrap for today. I will drop a post for this episode on my social channels. So hop on over to Facebook or Instagram. That is where all the action will take place. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Feed Room Chemist. If you like what you hear, be sure to share with your friends, post to social media, or give us a review. And as Winston Churchill used to say, No hour of life is wasted that is spent in the saddle. So go saddle up.